0: Okay, if you would, please turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 11. I'll be reading Luke, chapter 11, verses 14 through 23. Luke eleven fourteen through 23. And now he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. And some of them said he cast out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, while others to test him kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself. How will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man fully armed guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray that we all are given ears to hear and eyes to recognize the presence of your kingdom. And as desperately violent people seek to enter it and to continue to experience your reign savingly over our souls to the glory of your name. And therefore I ask for your help to unfold this historical day written here in Luke 11. Help me be clear in my speaking and that my speaking be clearly that which is stated to the glory of your name. Amen. <clears throat> I have, a, some of you know, i got to stick them in my study on the wall, just small. And it's got three statements which I find so central to life. First, what is someone saying? Second, is it true? Third, what of it? Does it matter? I mean, let me give you, for instance, say you come up to me and you say, hey, Joe, uh, th- there's a Girl Scout selling cookies in Joplin, Missouri, on the corner of East Street and Vine Avenue right now. Okay, what are you saying? That's, that doesn't take me too long to understand. That, that's pretty good. I understand what Girl Scout is. I can see a little dress on her. And they sell cookies to raise money. It makes sense. And I, I've been to Joplin, Missouri. Okay, there's a statement. I understand what you said. Second question. Is it true? I don't know. Just because you said it doesn't make it true. But we live in our day and age, so you say, look, grab your smartphone. There might be a camera at the corner of East Street and Vine Avenue. And so we mess around for 25 minutes and we find out there is a camera and we can see a live view. And lo and behold, your statement is correct. There is a Girl Scout selling cookies. Third question, what of it? So What? Why should I care? Often we should ask the third question second. (laughs) Because if I would have asked it second, I would have realized I don't see any real reason for me to know whether it's true or not and how it's going to impact my life, and I wouldn't have wasted 25 minutes trying to confirm whether or not it was true. Because I don't care. It'll save you a lot of time in life. Lots of people, whether politically or religiously, theologically, come up. And they, they tell me, oh, you've got to look at this. Here's a statement. And I'm thinking, I have no idea. It's true. You, let me hear. Are there any arguments? I don't know. And a lot of those things, I realize because of how broken I am, it would take me 120 hours of my life to come to a conclusion. And I've done that with lots of things. But often I ask that third question. So what? Do I care? Is it worth investing 120 hours? And often it's not. Oh, it's a lifesaver. The what of it. This morning, we're faced with that third question. What of it? To the question of this itinerant traveling preacher, first century Palestine Jesus, Where does he get the source of his ministry? Is it from Satan? Or is it from God? The question is, is he the one who has come to bear, bring with him the presence of the Kingdom of God, or not? The way each human being back then And today in this room answers that question. The what of it is huge. It has unending, conscious, forever, consequences to every one of us in here. Let's go to the text. Luke 11. Let's begin with verse 14. And now He, Jesus was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke. And the people marvel. Okay, that's real simple. Three things. There's the work of Christ. There's the result. And then there's the reaction. Jesus drives out this unseen entity, this personal being called a demon, out of the man... The result is the man who could not and had not spoken, spoke. I, I got to think he probably said, thank you, or praise God, but he spoke. And then the reaction was that the crowd was amazed and marveled. Now, not all marveling at this meant, wow, awesome, awesome. Sometimes people can be amazed at something they do not like. And this action produced, with other marveling, maybe some of that, awesome, but we see from the text it produced two negative reactions. The first was just totally negative and we're going to be dealing with it. The second was somewhat skeptical. But here's the one thing. No one's doubting. This guy who could not speak spoke after Jesus demanded the demon to come out of him. Everyone recognized something has happened. But how it is to be understood is the debate that we're faced with in this text. Pick up with verse 15. But some of them said... He cast out demons by Beelzebul, the the prince of demons, while others, in order to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. So, in Luke 11, Jesus is going to address both of those essential accusations. Today, we're only going to go to verse 23 and deal with The first one. They did not deny that some extraordinary power was with Jesus. The mute guy spoke. Ah, okay. He's able to do that because he's in cahoots with Satan. Beelzebub, the prince of demons. And somehow Satan it in his best interest to say, you know what, I'm in control of the demons and I'm going to let you cast some out in order to deceive people to follow you. That's what evidently some of them are saying, particularly Pharisees and scribes we see from the other Gospels. Here they use the term Beelzebul. So just real briefly, in the first century Jewish culture, Satan had different names, like we usually give to people we don't like sometimes. And, and this was one of them, Beelzebul, which really has its roots back a thousand years almost, in the Old Testament. In 2 Kings chapter 1, the king is sick. And so I just pick up, this is what it says. He, as he lay sick. So he sent messengers telling them, go inquire of Baal, Canaanite, God, go inquire of Baal-zebub, the god of Ekron, whether I shall recover from the sickness. But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, arise, go up to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria and say to them, is it because there is no God in Israel that you are going to inquire of Baal-zebub, the god of Ekron? And what came out of that is because of the God of Ekron as opposed to Yahweh was a play and a twist on that word, Beelzebub, which gives it the meaning Lord of the Flies in order to make fun of this false God. And then that word eventually became a substitute, a derogatory term for Satan. So it's in their first century. That's what they mean, Beelzebub. Now, The Jewish community here, as we look at this text, over the previous couple years, Jesus has been in public ministry. So you take that and you take this particular day where he cast this demon out. They have had enough evidence to decide who is this guy. So Jesus poses the basic question that his healings his confrontation with the demonic world brings about. And he says, you got two options, and that's it. To explain who I am and what is happening. He says, therefore, to them, your accusation by Satan, I'm doing that? He says, all right, let's assume it's true. Let's think logically. It doesn't hold up. Logically, it makes no sense. Look at verses 17 and 18. But He, Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. Make sense? If you've got people fighting each other in a realm when they're supposed to have an, an army and protect themselves, it's going to implode, Jesus says. Think. Every household will fall if it does that. Okay? And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? I know what you guys are saying. <laughs> I cast out demons by Beelzebub. So he appeals to their this common illustration about a kingdom divided against itself. And his point is, if it's true, Satan, who these guys on his team, demons, supposed to be with him, and he tells me, I can attack them. He just says, duh, it doesn't work. It's illogical. Think about it. He's appealing to the reason and their logic. And what's implied is that Satan would never do this. Satan is all about hating and doing what he can to destroy human beings. Sickness and disease and spiritual attacks on the soul is what he's about. And Jesus says he would not give anybody power to stop that and turn it around. And so Jesus drives home. That reasoning is utterly illogical. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? It won't. That's his point. And then Jesus moves from that lack of logic in their response to its implications in its, his second statement in verse 19. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by the authority of Satan, then by whom do your sons Cast them out. Now notice, there's a therefore. Therefore they will be your judges. That, that's not a real question. That's a rhetorical question. He's making a statement. Your sons are casting demons out. Implied. If you accuse me of casting them out by the hand of Satan then you have to be accusing them also. Now, who the heck are these sons? Now, it's possible Jesus is referring to first century Jewish exorcist. Maybe the sons, particularly of the, the Pharisees in their sect. Which did exist in the first century, which would mean something like what would other Jewish exorcists think about your accusing me of doing it by the hand of Satan? But I'm not sure that that's what he means by sons. I think he probably means his own disciples. In other words, what would your sons, your fellow Jews, like Peter, James, John, Andrew, or, or even in the previous chapter, 72 other people we have no names for that Jesus sent out to by two, and they were casting out demons? These are sons of Israel's. Okay. But nevertheless, whether it's one or the other, the point is that what these critics are saying about Jesus they must accept for everyone who would be casting out demons if jesus works by satan's power then so do other exorcists whether it's his own disciples or jewish first century exorcists and if these others do it by god's power his point is so do i it's one or the other if Jesus' critics. He does it by Beelzebub. If they are wrong, Jesus says, then you better know that these other exorcists, like my disciples, your sons, fellow Israelites, they're going to be your judge for rejecting what was right before your eyes. That, that's why I think it is Jesus' disciples, because of that comment when He says, Therefore, they will be your judges. So, Jesus, in effect, is saying, you people, particularly Pharisees and scribes, are not only dealing with Me in this matter of casting out demons, but also with many of your sons, your fellow Israelites who are with Me And to reject them is to set them up as your judges. Now, up to that point in verse 19, this is what really leads him to his transition to his central and decisive point in this passage, which is about his own authority And how he shares it with others. Verse 20. He goes on. But if, but if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. That is the (laughs) what of it of this passage that we must answer. The ramifications of coming to a conclusion. Is that true? Our question is the question with eternal consequence. So what I want to do, again, I do it here and there when I run across passages like this. Because I find it so central to understand the New Testament. What's going on with with these terms? I want to pull back and look at the large biblical picture that this term, the kingdom of God, which is so central in Jesus' ministry and even in Paul's. Start this way. First, that term together, the kingdom... the reign, rule, the kingdom of God, is not used in the Old Testament. But the concept, the idea, is throughout the Old Testament, particularly in the prophets, talking about the future, coming rule of God. Talking about the promise of the Son of david's lineage to come to sit on a throne and to reign forever and ever unendingly those concepts are there so the old testament clearly looks forward to a reign, a rule of God in a way that he wasn't doing it presently in the Old Testament. And it looks forward to this idea of the Messiah, Mashiach, son of David, the promise through the prophets. Okay, you got that? Now, just, here's, you got a timeline Moses is around 14, 1300. Okay. King David's, the year 1000 BC. The Old Testament, the, the, late, the, the last prophets in Israel were after the exile, right around 430 BC. And there's no more prophets. You go to 400, you go to 350. Silence. They have their scriptures. It's there. It's all been written now. You go to 330. Alexander the Great is trying to conquer all he can before he dies young. So all this stuff's happened in history. During those 400 years from the close of the Old Testament where there's no prophets in Israel to when one day John the Baptist shows up. What the heck? Okay. It's 400 years. During that time is when Judaism was developed. And with the development of Judaism and the differing sects, there was the theology arising of the kingdom of God. And they knew the term and they used the term. We have already seen in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus make these kinds of comments about His very self as the one who is ushering in the kingdom of God. And we see it again right here. But if it is by the finger of God that I am casting out demons, then you are to know that the kingdom of God has come upon you. Now, let me pull back again. Let's just jump forward to the watch the cross and everything that's happened in the book of Acts. And there's an understanding. Ah, oh, this is what this idea of the kingdom of God is about in the New Testament. So, I'm just going to give you an overview. When we look at the New Testament, this is what we get out of it. That the kingdom of God we see now, <laughs> on this side of the cross has two stages to it. And that was totally unexpected. In Jesus' first coming, like we're seeing through the Gospel of Luke, Jesus' his first coming inaugurated the coming in the presence of the rule, the reign, the kingdom of God as a spiritual realm. And at its core, in Jesus' ministry, it is a, a warfare, it is a clash with the spiritual, demonic, and satanic realm. So with Jesus' coming, as we see in our passage, the kingdom of God has arrived. Yet, it's still not yet here in another not yet consummated. It has come really, truly, spiritually. And yet, many Old Testament promises through the prophets have not happened. Even till today, they haven't happened. Like death being wiped out. No more crying. No more evil. Pure righteousness. Where the lion will lie down with the lamb. That's all in Jesus' ministry and even today, still future. Now, when you look at the New Testament, it is that tension that Jesus refers to as the mystery of the kingdom of God the now presence of the kingdom, and at the same time, the not yet, in its consummation, its present, and its still future. The mystery refers to that unexpected fact that the kingdom of God comes in two stages, not just one. The first stage is like a mustard seed. That's how Jesus would talk, right? To explain the kingdom. It's like a mustard seed. just almost unnoticeable by many people. It's like a mustard seed. The first coming. The presence of the kingdom. It's not like a military coup. Not yet. Like a couple weeks ago in Marcelo's sermon. The first coming is the king riding on a donkey's. Colt into Jerusalem with a branch of peace and amnesty. Don't be fooled. He's coming again on a great white horse with a sword of judgment. Now, other terms that the New Testament uses concerning the mystery of the kingdom of God are this age this present evil age and the age to come that this age is the age with cancer and demons and brokenness and insanity and war and lions will not lie down with lambs and then there's this future promise of the age to come with perfect Righteousness. Now, what we see in the New Testament is that the mystery of the kingdom of God is that these two ages, instead of going this age and then the age to come starts and that's it, the way they saw it, is that these two ages intersected in a sense of overlap. Where this present evil age still goes on and somehow something of the future age to come has In a sense, gone backwards into history and invaded the present evil age spiritually while this present evil age goes on. So that's what we we see in the New Testament. It's the mystery. There's two comings. It comes. It's present. It's real. You can see it in the spiritual realm in Jesus' presence. With this conflict, with the unseen demonic realm. The future age to come is not here in its consummation, but spiritually, it has invaded this present evil age spiritually. That's why the Hebrew writer could say stuff like this to you who are Christians We have tasted, we don't have it and it's full. Oh, we don't. We cry. Dads die. But we have tasted of, this is a quote, of the powers of the age to come. Now, in this present, it's a horn, okay? You don't need to look. Let's go. It's a horn. Jesus comes when we look at the Gospel of Luke, Jesus comes in the womb of Mary. And in His ministry, now that He is 30 some odd years old, He is ushering in the Kingdom of God. And at its core, this is what you see in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all over. At its core, there is this clash with demons. It was Satan. And so, That's why he says in our text, did you see me cast out the demons or the demon from this guy who could not speak and then he spoke? Yeah, you did. Therefore, you are to know that the kingdom of God has come upon you. This kingdom that he speaks of at this point, is really there. It is a spiritual realm. So we're going to make a transition. You've got to hear it. It is a real spiritual realm in this present evil world. A realm, a rule of salvation that people enter. And others don't. And Luke, in Luke book 2, called the Acts of the Apostles, see, he understands this stuff as he's writing this for us. So in Luke 2, as he will continue after the resurrection and the ascension, what is happening with the presence of the kingdom? And he essentially is saying, Jesus the King has arrived. And he did his work on the cross. And he rose from the dead. And He ascended to the Father. And He has sent God, the Holy Spirit, in a way that He never worked before. And that work of the Spirit is the work at the core of the Kingdom. That's what He does in Acts. So when you turn to Acts 1, He says, Guys, He's already resurrected from the dead. He's been teaching them for almost five weeks post-resurrection. You're still not getting it. Wait in Jerusalem until I send power from on high. And then Acts chapter 2 opens up, and they've waited, and they waited, and they waited. And the day of Pentecost comes, and then the gift, the Holy Spirit, falls. And they're filled with the Spirit. Peter preaches chapter 2 of Acts. Uh, we start at verse 30. He says this, Being therefore a prophet, that is David, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, one of the sons of David, he foresaw, that as David did, and spoke about the resurrection of the Messiah. That he was not abandoned to Hades, Nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Therefore, (laughs) being exalted at the right hand of God since his ascension, And having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, Jesus has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. And then Peter, in another sermon, in chapter 3, he makes it clear that the future coming of the kingdom, the future consummation of the kingdom is still not yet. Something's happening. This is how he says it in his sermon. Start with verse 19. Acts 3. Repent, therefore, and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing, wow, even now in the present evil age, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. And that He may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. Now hear Him. Whom, meaning right now, during this time, Whom heaven must receive. He's ascended. Until, until, we're still waiting for the until. Until the time for restoring. All things, which is not yet, until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. The kingdom has come, it's present, and it's not yet. In Acts 10, a few years later, Peter's preaching, he says, And He, Jesus, commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that He is the One appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To Him, all the prophets, the Hebrew prophets that came before Him, bear witness that everyone who believes in Him receives forgiveness. His name. Years later, the Apostle Paul in Greece preached this, chapter 17 of Acts. The times of ignorance got overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because He has fixed a future day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He appointed. And of this, He has given assurance to everybody by raising that man from the dead. Okay, just there's a big picture in the New Testament. Now, back in our text, here in Luke 11, we have the first phase of the kingdom, is what he's talking about. The first coming of this kingdom program, where there is a second coming. We can call it the invisible kingdom. The kingdom of God, as we have just seen, in the book of Acts, and the kingdom of God today, 2012, in the church of Jesus Christ. That kingdom is manifested in and through the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit. During this time of Jesus' physical Absence from the earth since his ascension. The result of Jesus' arrival here in the book of Luke, to the womb of Mary, is this cosmic clash with a real evil, demonic realm. Then his work as the substitutionary sacrifice on the cross where the sins of all who will be saved were punished and done for and paid for and over with. And then his resurrection. And then his ascension. And then as we read, his here it comes. Who sending forth the work of the Holy Spirit into the earth. That presence, ongoing presence of the coming of the kingdom, which has been going on for 2,000 years now, is evidenced through the transformed lives of sinners who are being swept into the kingdom by the person of the Holy Spirit. That's what's happening. That's where we're still at. We're in this time of tension. Not forever. Because that same baby born of Mary who grew up and was slaughtered on a cross and was genuinely human and genuinely died and genuinely was resurrected to a new kind of immortal life and then ascended. He will return. And then He will rule visibly on the earth, starting with the millennium and unto eternity. Okay. That's what I read in Luke. (laughs) And then Jesus illustrates this clash with this demon this way in verses 21-22, to saying, Essentially, His coming and bringing the kingdom is a war. Quote, when a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But, when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted. He divides his spoil. Clearly in the context, Satan, Beelzebul, is the strong man, fully armed. His possessions are safe. I'm going to read into it. I think think his human souls, he's the God of this world who blinds the minds of the unbelieving. Those possessions are are safely secured in Satan's hand till <laughs> the strong man who clearly is Jesus who's come to defeat Satan And Jesus' ministry of exorcism during His mortal earthly life means that Satan is overcome. The initial blow in Jesus' first coming and His entire work on the cross and resurrection is like D-Day in World War II. Once we stormed the beaches of Normandy and got on to the continent, the war was essentially over. It was not in doubt. It took almost a year, though, of a lot of blood because there were battles that needed to be fought till we got into Berlin. D-Day has happened. V-E Day, victory in Europe, I was assured, but you had a fight, and it was going to come. And V-E Day is coming so we presently right now live between the times in the time of overlap of the presence of the kingdom and the not yet of the kingdom we live in the time when the gospel that is when the news that's what it is We're not asking what what your experience is or my experience. The The gospel is that there is news that the one that God predicted through the prophets in the Hebrew Scriptures over and over has come. He lived. He was the Lamb pictured in the Old Testament who was slaughtered Because God poured His wrath out on Him. Him! The eternal One, uncreated One, who became human and never sinned and didn't deserve it. Because He imputed the sins of these persons whom He will save. He did it to uphold justice. And Jesus willingly received it. And He raised him from the dead to show death couldn't hold him. He, this man, unlike Adam and everybody else, this man never sinned. Therefore, it is true that His slaughter on the cross was God fully satisfying the penalty for sins of all those who would believe in Him. We live in the time when that message goes forth and it says, repent. Believe in Him. And the kingdom is yours. The future of the kingdom is even yours. The resurrection of the body unto eternal joy in no hell. Is yours. We live in the time where that message goes forth. And those persons who hear it and see it and believe and repent are those who have been swept into the kingdom by the person of the Holy Spirit. And they alone will be saved from the future judgment of sinners. There is no neutral ground. There is no well I just you know I like your three questions too but you know I don't have too much time life's kind of short so I like all religions. I got one of the stickers on my car. I got a cross and I got a star of David and a crescent and whatever they put for Buddhism and Hinduism and I like it all, so I'm I'm okay. Jesus concludes our passage today this way. Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. Jesus said in that context, the evidence of my ministry is enough. As he would say today, the evidence of his ministry and his crucifixion and the testimony of many eyewitnesses of his resurrection is enough. There is no fence sitting. And we who have gathered to him Know this then, okay? We have entered into the kingdom, the rule and the saving reign of Christ. And understand what that means. Some of you know that I'm trying to write my little spiritual biography of my life. And this chapter in there, at the end of it, I start about my first three or four years of Christianity. The good and then the bad. And the bad was the sect of Christianity that I happen to be kind of born, again, into, where they would teach, Jesus is born your sicknesses and your diseases, therefore you do not have to ever be sick. And if you are, it's ultimately your fault. Because it's your lack of faith. If they had understood what the New Testament is actually teaching about the presence of the kingdom, its nowness with its not yetness, future consummation, they could never have taught such dangerous, horrific things. So, what does it mean for us to be in the kingdom? It it means that we know Jesus has already purchased our healing. He has. He's really done it, but we also know we still groan in sickness and pain, Romans chapter eight. And I got news for everyone who has become a Christian, all the way up until the year let me see, I guess' be safe 1850? Every stinking one of them have died. they won't be physically dead forever. The future kingdom with His coming, He will raise them to eternal life and joy with God, with real physical bodies unable to be sick or die again. We have already passed from death to life. It's true. It's actually happened to every believer. And yet we will still physically die. Tension. We already have the indwelling, sanctifying Holy Spirit in us. Yeah, Paul said it this way, though, as a down payment. <laughs> You haven't come into the full possession yet. That's why the Christian life means until you die, you will be fighting and battling for sanctification, holiness, and against sin. We have already been acquitted of all of our sin. True. But we must go on every day praying as Jesus taught us in Luke 11 Forgive us our sins. As we forgive those who sin against us. It's three questions. What is someone saying? Is it true? And what of it? The what is the gospel? It is saying there really is a creator, and the world really is steeped in the judgment of sin there are horrific things happening right now in the world and that there is a day reckoned where God will judge everybody by a man whom he raised from the dead and that gospel says hear it embrace him believe in him and you will be delivered Saved from that judgment and unto eternal joy in enjoying God with the community of God forever. And you can't earn it. You can't do any gyrations to get it. You can only accept receive it. Yeah. That's the what. Okay, we got that. Uh, Memory, go to the third question for you in a second. You don't want to waste a lifetime figuring this thing out, if it's true or not, if it who cares? Well, the third one is, what of it? What of it? There is no bigger what of it in all the universe. As Jesus said, whoever is not with me, with me, not neutral, with me, is already against me. The what of it? is huge. And therefore, every person, particularly teenagers in here, do not assume your parents' religion. You may be deceived. It is a wonderful thing to be sanctified and grow up in a a Christian home, and it's a dangerous thing. Of course, it's my religion. Of course, Jesus. No, no, no. Have you asked the question? Have the questions of the truth of it and the significance of it arisen from your soul. Let them. Come, sir. Every one of us who have entered the kingdom of God There's a rejoicing, isn't there? There is a real, sustaining joy available even while crying and experiencing the loss of loved ones. The Apostle Paul later summarized it this way. The kingdom of God is presently righteousness, and peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. If you're in the kingdom, with the pain you may presently be feeling by God's sovereign hand, there is a joy daily of knowing what a great salvation I'm a son I'm a daughter of the kingdom let's sing something about this huh